with us for the past month. We've been in this series based on Philippians 3, a verse in there from Paul when he writes that he does one thing, he forgets what lies behind, and he strains toward what lies ahead. And the whole point of this series is just to acknowledge that we've been through a lot as a world, as a culture, as a church, as people over the past year and a half, and sometimes we can miss opportunity to pay attention to that and let ourselves fully feel and process all that is there. And so this series is about being transformed by the past, that forgetting what lies behind is not a denial of it, but a paying attention to process and be transformed by it, but then to gather ourselves towards uh, the future to, to be a part of what God has for us. That's like, well, um, so that's what we've been doing. In the past few weeks, three weeks or so, has been somewhat of a, of a negative bent, paying attention to the full reality we face. Much of what has been most obvious to us has been negative or painful things, things that are anxiety-inducing, fear-inducing, chaos-inducing. And so last week, we finally kind of said, when we pay attention to that, it's our choice to grieve, that God calls us to grieve in this world, that we are, are expected to do that. Sometimes it feels more natural to us than others, but it, at the very least, it is safe to grieve. And many times, uh, churches have not been good at allowing us to lament, but instead promoted a sense of false optimism. And so we were answering the question, what uh, has God, or what has been taken from us? What have we lost over the year of the pandemic and giving a chance to grieve? Today, we're flipping that question and going the other direction to say, what has the year of the pandemic given to us? What have we received? I mentioned at the beginning of last week's sermon that at the beginning of the pandemic, a mentor of mine told me, suggested that every day I reflect on the question, what has the pandemic taken from me today? What is it not taken from me today? Just to be aware. And then finally, what is it given to me? That there are things that we received over the past year and a half in with the negative things we experienced that are still gifts from God. And acknowledges the reality that this whole existence in our world is a mixed bag. It is never all the way good. It is never all the way bad. But instead, we live in this story that is in progress. And the story's roots, as we mentioned in our last series, is in God's good creation that he infused with beauty and functionality and wonder and order for us to dwell in with his presence. It sounds so good, but he empowered us with opportunity to to fulfill our role as his image bearers, and we failed. And in that, sin and disorder and sickness and chaos was allowed to kind of coexist with God's beauty. And since then, there has been a call to both grieve and lament the negative, what does not belong, the intruders in God's good world, while also acknowledging that God is still good, he is still present, and so we're called to give thanks. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says that we are called to give thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything. That is a, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That kind of covers all the bases, right? At all times. When am I supposed to be telling God thank you? All the time. And for what? Everything. Everything. At all times and everything. But I want to acknowledge that Paul is not saying you do this instead of grief. You do it in the face of the negative, in the face of the mess that we experience. And that the Bible includes loads of gratitude, of praise, of calling God's people to do that, of seeing our role as human beings to gather up the praises of creation to tell God thank you. And it's not in denial of the mess, it's in present of the mess while it's happening. I feel like today, this morning, my life has been a microcosm of this, man. As a preacher, you, there's a temptation to be delicate with your sermons, to imagine that you deserve all kinds of 
perfect quiet time to prepare undisturbed and get adequate moments of preparation and people to leave you alone and that kind of thing. This morning I had not that. Okay? I woke up to my dog. I have a brand new dog. Her name's Pancake. And she's been okay so far. Scott has been like, when are we going to hear about Pancake in church? Today is the day, although it's bad news. I woke up to her vomiting in her cage, man. I was like trying to muster the courage to get out of bed and I hear like gargles. I'm like, oh goodness. While cleaning it up, I kid you not, man, she, I've thrown her outside and she returns to the door with a dead rabbit. <laughs> and she was very proud and wants to bring it in the house. The only way to get her to drop it is to scare her and make her run away. And then she proceeds to throw up four more times in the house, man. This is during sermon prep time. Normally it's like, it's quiet. And then I take Pancake on a walk and we behold the wonders of God and the sunrise and big open space field and Pancake loves me at all times. And it's like, no matter how bad this could go today, Pancake likes me. But instead, chaos, man, all around. But it's just a microcosm of the fact that we live in a mess of a world and also there's goodness and beauty. And we're called to behold that with gratitude that we choose to practice. And it's not of like deny the bad things or have false optimism or you can't feel negative. It's a both and. So it's also not balanced. Don't think I need to balance my grief with gratitude. You need more of both. So when you feel a sense of like, I don't feel grief, like last week, you're like, what if I don't have anything bad? Well, you may stretch yourself to consider the suffering around you and choose to leave space to grieve and lament. And if you don't feel thankful, there's a choice to press into that too not at the expense of grief, but also. And that's a paradox. And my, uh, one of my professors always used to say, if you don't like paradox, you won't like the gospel. Because part of what it calls us to is a pressing in of both and. A life intention, a forgetting what lies behind, a straying towards what lies ahead, a grieving and a gratitude. And the Spirit of God empowers us to do both. And so I'm going to make a case from the Bible and kind of show us the reason for gratitude, why it always must be there no matter what we're experiencing in life. And then I'm going to talk about the centrality of gratitude, how central it is to the Christian life. It can't just be an aside, wait on the list. I'm going to show you how it's the core of it, and then we'll talk about some practices for it as well, and all with, with what in mind of looking back over the past year and a half especially. So first, the reason for gratitude we're going to be doing a little bit of here, verse, there, verse, everywhere, verse, verse today. Normally not my style, but gratitude is kind of a theme woven throughout lots of parts of the Bible. And I want to try to make a case that's more thematic than I normally would. So Luke 17 is a starting point for the reason for gratitude. Verses 11 through 19, Jesus cleanses 10 lepers. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him, keeping their distance. They called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. So, so much of this story is a common theme in Jesus' ministry. He encounters a person who is in, uh, the, among the most humble and desperate states. The people that tended to uh, be most ready to receive what Jesus had to give them 
are, were the most humble, the most obviously humble and broken and needy people in their culture. And so one such category of people in that culture were people who were sick. And Jewish people had a sense where you had a physical sickness that also had something to do with your spiritual reality, your degree of cleanness. And that part of that law based in Leviticus was in order to actually deal with kind of what we're facing as a world now to deal with communicable diseases, that if you are sick, we need you to separate from the camp so as not to make your sickness spread. But that comes in tune with it, a sense of spiritual uncleanness. And so these lepers would have been not only physically not well, but also socially outcast a bit and seen as kind of spiritually on the outskirts. And in order to be able to re-enter into normal life, and enter into normal temple activity, they had to have their sickness removed and a priest had to declare them clean. Jesus encounters several such people and he deals with the whole person and brings healing to them. And that's what he does here. But all 10 of them receive that healing on the way and nine of them forget to tell him thank you. Nine of them forget the gift that they had been received that was not deserved. But the, the, the story is always emphasized in, in the Gospels when you have something that's unique or that stands out. And here what is unique or what stands out is that the one person that said thank you was what Jesus says, a Samaritan and a foreigner. So in kind of the social hierarchy in the first century Jewish world, the ideal person that is on the top of the food chain is a wealthy male Jewish person with no sickness. And every step of degree below that is further at the bottom of the totem pole. So all the lepers were already one step down, but now you have a foreign person that also is a leper. They're another step below. And that, that marker is important to note the kind of people most receptive to what God's after, which is the bottom of the totem pole, those who are humble. And so the root of all need for gratitude is a, is a recognition of our humble dependence before God that we are at the bottom of the barrel. Now, here's what the gospel always tries to emphasize too, though, is that those folks in the gospels are the ones who have an obvious sense of their humility, but they're always a recognition that everyone is actually in the same place of need. It's just they're more conscious of it. They are under the illusion that they are well enough on their own. So the real push is that we all see the degree to which we are as humbly dependent and as needy as the Samaritan leper, which would call us to gratitude. Let me show you the verses right before this that emphasize that quality of humility even more. And this verse, our culture is not going to like it. Let me read verses 7 through 10. This is right before it. So humility is the running theme. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending the sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, uh, later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. So just pay attention to your reaction to that. If you are disturbed, you are most likely disturbed from the gospel's influence on our culture and in your own life. The reason why our culture would bristle at anything that would push against our sense of self-worth and dignity, it's from the gospel's influence here. Reading a great book called Dominion by Tom Holland right now, he's a historian, that just describes the, the vast degree and the depth to which 
the gospel has penetrated Western culture and infused our care with gospel-themed things like justice for all people, dignity for everyone, everyone bearing God's image. So many people who aren't Christians would bristle at this, but they may not realize that it's the gospel that would make them so concerned about it. That is what would drive us to care for the dignity of all people. So Jesus' main point here, if you balance out what the rest of his own teaching and the rest of the Bible, is not that we need to think ourselves of low self-worth and to have no dignity, but to have a sense that we shall never have God in our debt. There is never a moment when any human being is entitled to a certain amount of things from God. We are never in, God is never in our debt. He never owes anything to us. We start from the bottom, and then you realize that everything on top of that is a gift from God. That you don't do anything to earn it. And you recognize that every breath we breathe, every piece of food we put in our mouth, every water that we drink, every beautiful scene we take in, every night you have under a roof, anytime you are clothed, any day that you are well, any good conversation you have, nice friend you have, hug you experience, sight you see that you enjoy, musical note that sounds good, smell that smells good to you if COVID hasn't taken away your sense of smell. If you experience any of that goodness, even while in the face of tragedy, that is gravy. We are like not worth anything except for what God has given us. If you have a sense of self-worth, it's because the Spirit of God breathed life into you who are dust and made you beautiful, as we just sang. That it's, we do have are infused with dignity and worth and beauty. It is all from God. And so there's nothing like, I have this goodness and God's over there, and then maybe he can give me more on top of this. It just robs any sense of entitlement, of I deserve of anything, we are all the unclean, Samaritan, foreigner, on that level of humble dependence. And even if you are wealthy, even if you have it all together, even if you are healthy, even if you have nothing, that if, if, you, if you are envied by everyone else, you are still in utter need and dependence on God, whether you realize it or not. We should pay attention to those who are not under the illusion of control or, uh, or a higher sense of worth be influenced by them to remember that sense of need. So the reason is our extreme humble dependence that just comes by way of being a human being. We are all permanently vulnerable and open-handed to receive with our hands what anything that God could ever give us. So we thank him always and for everything, just for the fact that we even exist. Your life didn't even have to be here. He chose to make you out of his own delight. We receive that with gratitude. It's our humble dependence. And so that is the reason for gratitude, and it is so connected to just what it means to be human. This is not a beatdown session. That is, God has given us all this. Anything on top of death is gravy. We receive it with gratitude. Now I want to talk about how central that is. If that is so true, I want to make a case for how central this is. I want to show in the New Testament how tied to the root of all sin, the first fruits of sin and idolatry is ingratitude. Then the first fruits of new life in the spirit, of new life in the gospel, is gratitude. And it becomes a thing that permeates all Christian living. And I want you to consider, if I ask you the question, is so-and-so a Christian, and it's the kind of person that you're not quite sure they would say they're a Christian, what qualities usually come to mind? You're thinking, are they kind? Are they servant-hearted? Do they, are they good husbands and wives and are good parents that they have kids and they're married? Are they generally nice people? Are they generous? Are they servant-hearted? I want to say the New Testament would make gratitude that thing. So first, I want to start real quick in Romans 1, 
This is quite a passage, and I'm not even going to get to the dark, the most uh, controversial parts of it. I would encourage you to read the rest of it later, and holler at me when you have questions when you do so. But let me just note here the connection to ingratitude to sin. Paul's about to make a case for how sin has permeated all of the world, and all people are guilty of idolatry, but he's going to show us kind of how we get there. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. That's where sin starts. A suppression of the truth. He says it like five times in this passage. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made so that they are without excuse. For though they knew God, here's another suppression of the truth, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. He says several more times in the passage that they suppress the truth and believe in a different reality than the one God has put forward and that God hands them over to that choice. And then Paul does his vice list where he just lists off every sin that comes to mind. It's like stream of consciousness. And some of the things listed, they're like, mercy, man, that wouldn't be on my normal list of sins or whatever. But man, it's in the list. But I want to note that it starts with ingratitude. The first sign of a hidden idolatry is the lack of gratitude. When we look at our own hearts and sense that thankfulness is not there and we feel ungrateful, pay attention. It's the start or the root of more that could come later on. It's the first sign. They suppress the truth that God is God and they are dust to whom he is graciously and mercifully given life And from dwelling in that suppression of reality, God hands them over to that choice, and that then manifests itself in all different kinds of sin and evil. But it starts with a loss of their humble dependence and a sense of prideful entitlement that means they are ungrateful. And I can see this in my own life. I've mentioned before that I've kept a gratitude journal for the past year and a half or so, and I've noticed how hard it is to do it. I will get it off the shelf with my Bible, bring it to the table, and sit it there. And there have been days that I've done all that and then not write in it. <laughs> it's a very obvious forget. Like, it's not just like forgot. I had brought the journal to the table where I do kind of study and that kind of thing. And don't write in it. And then put it back on the shelf before. So while writing this, I was like, man, I'm going to have to tell them that, won't I? It's like, yes, you will. You will have to own that you are not always grateful. And so I need to like, you know mess around a little bit to see where I need to kind of make myself do it because it's not flowing like it has been. Or I'd open it up and stare and realize, why is, am I having so much trouble thinking of a gift? Life is filled with gifts. I can objectively name them and yet it's hard to write them down. That's a clue to pay attention because the root of, tied to the root of sin is ingratitude. Watch for it. But on the flip side, first signs that the gospel is at work in your life is gratitude flowing. Go to Colossians uh, two, I told you I was going to do here, verse, there, verse, everywhere, verse, verse, man. We're just taking them down from the wall and throwing them at you. But I'm trying to make a case here and draw a theme. He says this in, in Colossians 2, verses uh, 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Notice again, so much generic stuff. You receive Jesus, big picture. You received him as a gift. 
and continue to live. It's like really generic, right? Live in him with faith as the undergirding part of that. And then the first specific quality name is abounding in thanksgiving. A first obvious sign that you have encountered a life-changing presence of the gospel in your life is that you live with a sense of gratitude. Because think, on the way in, everybody's entrance into receiving the gospel is to be baptized, which is a debt. You are coming open-handed with a sense of humility where you are acknowledging you cannot clean yourself and you have to receive someone else on behalf of God to dunk you down in that water and to be cleaned by this other person and to experience a sense of death to self and then raising to new life and a newness of life that flows from that. That then enters in with a degree of an admission, public admission of humble dependence and an absence of entitlement, a forsaking of entitlement to receive the life-changing gift of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit and all the rest of fruitfulness that comes with being in Christ. And so a natural outflow of that, a first outflow of that is a sense, again, of gratitude, of thanksgiving, that we are, it's wondrous and almost unbelievable that we can receive this. And if you came to Christ or at least had a major turn as a grown-up, you may remember that time when that happened. I remember being 18, and that's when like grace really kicked in for the first time. I'd been baptized as a kid and grew up in church, but at age 18 was when it really hit. And man, for six months to a year, my faith took off like a rocket. And grace was so evident to me. I could not believe that I had this gift. It was like stunning that God would have mercy on my heart and receive me in this way. And so for a good year, that sticks. If you're like me though, then you get into the mess of life, you mess it up to some degree, many, many times, and then you can, heart can grow kind of like used to it. Oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, that we do this, this is kind of a routine thing, we're back in church now, versus like living with that sense of almost surprise, astonishment, that God would have mercy on us in this way. And there's a choice to dwell in that, even when it doesn't come naturally, which I'll mention soon. But thanksgiving then, root of all sin, and then first fruits of new life in Jesus, and then the New Testament connects it to everything. I'm not going to put all the verses up because there's so many of them, but in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, gratitude has an intimate connection to generosity. In Philippians 4, gratitude has an intimate connection to a sense of peace and a release of worry. That same chapter it also has a connection to generosity. And second, or not generosity, um, a, a sense of a contentment and peace. And then in 2 Timothy 1, gratitude has a rich connection to meaningful, committed Christian community. Think when you're thankful for those other people who are also believers, you tend to want to invest in them all the more. In 2 Corinthians 4, it's connected to evangelism and a fruitfulness of evangelism. And that a motivation to share the gospel is that when other people receive Jesus, they too will overflow with thanksgiving and more thanksgiving will spread through the world towards God who is worth it. In Ephesians 5, it's connected as a replacement to unholy speech and use of the tongue that if we want to grow in the use of our tongue in a more holy, life-giving way, it starts with being able to tell God and other people, thank you. Gratitude has a rich connection to everything else that we do as Christians. We worship, we share the gospel, we're on mission, we live in Christian community, we give of our time, energy, and resources, we live a life with contentment and peace. All that has a connection to gratitude. There's not one place in the New Testament where it's all listed out, but there's lots of verses where it gets mentioned. And finally, it's because of all that connection that Paul can say in in 1 Thessalonians 5 that he says, give thanks in all circumstances, all the time for everything. He's already said that once. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many of y'all been like me and been like, man, I wish God would tell me what his will for my life is. If only he could write it upon the clouds, whether he wants me to marry this person or move to Indianapolis or, you know, go to this or that college or like show me this and that job or pick this house. If he could just give me a sign. Here's your sign, brother. In all circumstances, the will of God for your life is to live with gratitude towards Jesus. That is God's will for you. What's God's will for me? For you to live with a sense of thanksgiving. Well, that's not, I would like him to also tell me where I shall work. Maybe he's given you freedom for that, and you live with a sense of gratitude, and that will come. And so there's a call then. Think of gratitude has that much rich connection to what it means to be a faithful person, a renewed human being who is coming to grips with what it means to be God's new creation and to bear his image. This is a call. And don't feel a sense of guilt then. You're like, I don't feel grateful. That's okay. There's not about feeling. It's a choice to be grateful and live a sense of a pursuit of gratitude even when you don't feel it. Just as if you live a life filled with optimism and joy, our call last week is to live into grief some on behalf of suffering people. It's both and. We're going to practice gratitude. We're ready to move on to the next item. So we're practicing gratitude now, and I want to point that out again, that it's about choice. If you read Psalms, which to me is like a baseline prayer book, it's the prayer book for the church, I would note how many times in there the author says, I will give thanks. It's almost like they're telling themselves, I'm going to do it. I will write in that gratitude journal <laughs> next time I see it. You know, I'm going to make a choice to do it. And not only many times there's declarations of what I will do, I will give thanks, I will praise the Lord, there's other times when there is a command. And where, like, the psalmist who's writing prayers for the people, they are communal prayers, the sales people, give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. It's repeated all the time because they know it's not natural. That we live in a life where it is a hot mess at times. There's tragedy. There's chaos. There's difficulty. There's loss. There's a real sense of grief. And there's a choice to live into gratitude anyway. I think sometimes I get in the trap of thinking if there's a negative thing, I have to let it dwell and sink on me until it is dealt with, and it's almost I feel bad to be thankful too. But Stanley Howard wrote a great challenging article about this like in the 80s, when at that point in time, the big all-consuming thing in the world or in our country was dealing with the, the, the Cold War and the nuclear crisis. And there was a push at that time that all people's lives need to be consumed by the threat of the bomb. And like, oh my goodness, what if the bomb was to come? We need to restructure our whole lives and attention to where our only thought is to deal with this imminent threat. Of course, that is not the looming threat, but now we have a pandemic. And there's a push that as Christians are awakened to the negative parts of the world, are pressing into a forgotten call to lament and to grieve, are pressing into a forgotten responsibility to fight for justice for the oppressed, that there can almost be a challenge and a call that we must dwell in the dreary at all times. And if you don't feel that and instead choose to let yourself be thankful, you are forsaking your call as a responsible Christian. Maybe that's not you. But by my former ministry in Cincinnati, a good chunk of people, especially younger folks, bore that burden heavily and could not let themselves be thankful and experience joy because they felt like it was irresponsible, not fair to the people that were suffering around them. But God would call us to do both. 
that one of the best things we can do as we fight for justice in the world and grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those to mourn is also practice a healthy sense of devoted gratitude that we hold both in our hands that God has given us gifts we don't deserve and also calls us to live with that sense of generosity and choose to practice it even when we don't feel it and even in the face and alongside of chaos. Hold both in your hands. Allow yourself to be stretched out like that. That's a part of the tension of the Christian life. So how to do it? Two parts. One is in prayer. Early and often in prayer, and I mentioned a prayer journal, that I personally in my journal only write uh, gratitude stuff. I just read one study. This is a secular study about calling people both to write out a bunch of negative things and write out things you're thankful for, checked in on them after a few months, see how they're doing. The people that focused on the grateful thoughts ended up experiencing a sense of joy, a decrease in anxiety and depression, and an increase of a healthier social life by choosing to pay attention, even more attention than usual, to the things you're thankful for. And a lot of times for us, the negative things come to mind pretty easily. I'm not saying don't write those down. This is what I do. I'm also, this may surprise you, I'm a man of quite a few words. So if I get, if I get to writing, I may not stop. But if I just say, just write three things you're thankful for, that seems more attainable journaling discipline for me. I can't just write everything out. Goodness me, the hand would cramp. But I choose to write it out as a way to make myself slow down so I don't rush to the, the negative parts or the parts that are making me anxious and fearful. But if I write those out, it makes me slow down, choose gratitude first, and let all requests flow from a place of thankfulness even if I don't feel it or even when I want to rush to the anxiety-inducing parts. The Psalms show us that God can handle it all. There are more lamentations and grief in Psalms than there is of gratitude. But gratitude needs to be a healthy part of it even as we cry out to God for more. And so that's gratitude in our prayer life and between us and God and oftentimes writing. But there's also gratitude in community. How many times you read the first chapter of a letter in the New Testament and, you know, when Paul's writing a letter, he's usually doing it because the church is in a hot mess, man. Go read Corinthians and they are dealing with all kinds of stuff. But chapter one is still, I praise God for you and for the fruitfulness in your life and that you know Jesus and that I'm in, in this life with you. He gets to dealing with their division and they're sleeping around and all kinds of drunkenness and strange things going on, but he starts with gratitude. And you have to wonder where many times our negativity first flows against other Christians and the church and becomes a reason for unfaithfulness and pulling away. But if our community, even as we deal with conflict and difficulty and confusion, begins with a deliberate sense of gratitude for other people as a way of encouraging them, think how meaningful it is to you if someone else in this room sent you a text, an email, a card, or a random phone call when they weren't with you in order to tell you how they praise God for you and thank God for your life. What does that do to you, man? I'll tell you what it does to me. It changes my life for the next month. That's what it does. It's so overwhelmingly encouraging that someone could think that of you when they're not with you and make themselves say it. You actually almost owe it to that person. If you think a good thought about someone in this room, it's not even yours to keep. You should tell them that you thought something highly of them and thank God for them, for their life and for that thing about them. If gratitude then permeates the community, that is a choice that I will choose to tell God, thank you for you, and then tell you I did it. I think I might do a sermon on that in a few weeks, more emphasizing it more. But wonder how that does for our community and for your own heart when, as we all know, being in church and doing church well is hard, especially do it for the long haul. 
if you don't, then like, you know, you can change in two years and then realize you're, the next church you're at is the same stuff that you're in now, and you just go through that cycle. But if we let gratitude infuse our community, wonder what kind of sense of peacemaking and, and welcome we have into this place. And so I encourage us to step into that choice with attainable goals without shame. This isn't like I should feel bad that I wasn't thankful. This is like, how do I press into this today? And there's an open hand of receiving from the Spirit. And all this is sitting on the foundation that if we have Jesus, we have everything else. Anything on top of that is gravy. The king of the universe has become a human being and died on your behalf for you to be in his eternal family forever, to be in his presence forever. What else do we need? Anything else on top of that is a sense of like, man, this is a day I I didn't deserve. This is a meal that no one, I I didn't deserve to get. This is a a breath that I didn't deserve to breathe. A sense of health that I did not work for, deserve, or entitled to. He gave it to us on top of a physical, real foundation that he has entered into our life and space, counted it worthy to live in as a human being, died a brutal death, and rose from the dead in order to say, this is the beginning of first fruits of gifts he will give us for eternity. We receive that with the most gratitude and let everything else from there flow out and giving God thanks always and for everything. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we choose to receive it. Let those words sink into my own heart too. Let us live with a sense of humble and content gratitude, an undeserved receiving of of your grace that you fill our lives and our world with. Let it sink into us and mold us and change us. We need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.